Chapter Seven, Part One of Laddie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Laddie by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter Seven, Part One. When Sally married Peter. Mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. A charm from the skies seems to hallow us there, which seek through the world is ne'er met with elsewhere. When they began arranging the house for the wedding. It could be seen that they had been expecting it and getting ready for a long time. From all the closets, shelves, and chests poured heaps of new things. First, the walls were cleaned and some of them freshly papered. Then the windows were all washed long before regular house cleaning time. The floors were scrubbed and new carpet put down. Mother had some window blinds that Winfield had brought her from New York in the spring, and she had laid them away. No one knew why then. We all knew now. When mother was ready to put them up, father had a busy day and couldn't help her, and she was really provoked. She almost cried about it when Leon rode in bringing the mail and said Hannah Dover had some exactly like ours at her windows that her son had sent from Illinois. Father felt badly enough then, for he always did everything he could to help mother to be first with everything. But so she wouldn't blame him. He said cross like that if she had let him put them up when they came, as he wanted to, she'd have been six months ahead. When they finally got ready to hang the blinds, no one knew how they went. They were a beautiful shiny green, plain on one side, and on the other there was a silver border across the bottom and one pink rose as big as a pie plate. Mother had neglected to ask Winfield on which side the rose belonged. Father said from the way the roll ran, it went inside. Mother said that they were rolled that way to protect the roses, and that didn't prove anything. Laddie said he would jump on a horse and ride round the section and see how Hannah Dover had hers, and exactly opposite would be right. Everyone laughed, but no one thought he meant it. Mother had father hold one against the window, and she stepped outside to see if she could tell from there. When she came in, she said the flower looked mighty pretty, and she guessed that was the way. So father started hanging them. He had only two up when Laddie came racing down the hill bareback, calling for him to stop. I tell you that's not right, mother, he said as he hurried in. But I went outside, and father held one, and it looked real pretty, said mother. One, yes, said laddie. But have you stopped to consider how two rows across the house are going to look? Nine big pink roses, with the sun shining on them? Anything funnier than Dover's front I never saw. And look here. Laddie picked up a blind. See this plain back? It's double coated like a glaze. That is so the sun shining through glass won't fade it. The flowers would be gone in a week. They belong inside, mother, sure as you live. Then, when the blinds are rolled to the middle sash in the daytime, no one can see them, wailed mother, who was wild about pink roses. But at night, when they are down, you can put the curtains back enough to let the roses show, and think how pretty they will look then. Laddie is right, said father, climbing on the barrel to take down the ones he had fixed. What do you think, girls? asked mother. I think the princess is coming down the little hill, said Shelley. Hurry, father, take them down before she sees. I'm sure they're wrong. Father got one all right, but tore the corner of the other. Mother scolded him dreadfully cross, and he was so flustered he forgot about being on the barrel, so he stepped back the same as on the floor, and fell crashing. He might have broken some of his bones if Laddie hadn't seen and caught him. If you are sure the flowers go inside, fix one before she comes, cried mother. 
Father stepped too close to the edge of the chair, and by that time he didn't know how to hang anything, so Laddie climbed up and had one nailed before the princess stopped. She came to bring Sally the handkerchief, and it was the loveliest one any of us ever had seen. There was a little patch in the middle, about four inches square, and around it a wide ruffle of dainty lace. It was made to carry in a hand covered with white lace mitts, when you were wearing a wedding gown of silver silk lined with white. Of course, it wouldn't have been the slightest use for a funeral or with a cold in your head. And it had come from across the sea. From the minute she took it by a pinch in the middle, Sally carried her head so much higher than she ever had before, that you could notice the difference. Laddie went straight on nailing up the blinds, and every one he fixed he let down full length so the princess could see the roses were inside. He was so sure he was right. After she had talked a few minutes, she noticed the blinds going up. Laddie, in a front window, waved to her from the barrel. She laughed, and answered with her whip, and then she laughed again. "'Do you know,' she said, "'there is the funniest thing at Dover's. I rode past on the way to Groveville this morning, and they have some blinds like those you are putting up.' "'Indeed,' inquired my mother. "'Winfield sent us these from New York in the spring, but I thought the hot summer sun would fade them, so I saved them until the fall cleaning.' The wedding coming on makes us a little early, but—well, they may not be exactly the same, said the princess. I only saw from the highway. She meant road. There were many things she said differently. Have yours big pink roses and silver scrolls inside? Yes, said mother. The princess bubbled until it made you think one of those yellow oriole birds had perched on her saddle. That poor woman has gone and put hers up wrong side out. The effect of all those big pink roses on her white house front is most amusing. It looks as if the house were covered with a particularly gaudy piece of comfort calico. Only fancy. She laughed again and rode away. Mother came in, just gasping. Well, for all his mercies, large and small, the Lord be praised, she cried piously, as she dropped into the big rocking chair. That is what I consider escaping by the skin of your teeth. Then father and laddie laughed, and said they thought so too. When the blinds were up, the outside looked well, and you should have seen the inside. The woodwork was enameled white, and the wallpaper was striped in white and silver. Every so far on the silver, there was a little pink moss rose having green leaves. The carpet was plum red and green in wide stripes, and the lace curtains were freshly washed, snowy, and touched the floor. The big rocker, the straight-backed chairs, and the sofa were beautiful red mahogany wood, and the seats shining haircloth. If no one happened to be looking, you could sit on a sofa arm, stick your feet out, and shoot off like riding down a haystack. The landing was much better. On the sofa you bounced two feet high the first time, one the second, and a little way the third. On the haystack maybe you hit a soft spot, and maybe you struck a rock. Sometimes if you got smart, and tried a new place, and your feet caught in a tangle of weeds and stuck, you came up straight, pitched over, and landed on your head. Then if you struck a rock, you were still, quite a while. I was once, but you never dared let mother see you, on the sofa, I mean. She didn't care about the haystack. There were pictures in oval black frames having fancy edges, and a what-not where all our Christmas and birthday gifts, almost too dainty to handle, were kept. You fairly held your breath when you looked at the nest of spun green glass, with the white dove in it, that George Washington Mitchell gave to Shelley. Of course a dove's nest was never deep and round and green, and the bird didn't have red eyes and a black bill. I thought whoever could blow glass as beautifully as that might just as easy have made it right while he was at it. But anyway, it was pretty. 
There were pitchers, mugs, and vases, almost too delicate to touch, and the cloth-covered box with braids of hair coiled in wreaths from the heads of the little fever and whooping-cough sisters. Laddie asked Sally if she and Peter were going to have the ceremony performed while they sat on the sofa. Seemed the right place. They had done all their courting there, even on hot summer days. But I suppose that was because Sally didn't want to be seen fixing Peter's tie until she was ready. She made no bones about it then. She fixed it whenever she pleased. Likewise, he held her hand. Shelley said that was disgusting, and you wouldn't catch her. Leon said he bet a dollar he would, and I said if he knew he'd get beaten as I did, I bet two dollars he wouldn't tell what he saw. The mantle was white, with vases of the lovely grasses that grew beside the stream at the foot of the big hill. Mother gathered the fanciest every fall, dried them, and dipped them in melted alum, colored with copperas, aniline, and indigo. Then she took bunches of the colors that went together best, and made bouquets for the big vases. They were pretty in the daytime, but at night you could watch them sparkle and shimmer forever. I always thought the sitting-room was nicer than the parlor. The woodwork was white enamel there, too, but the bureau and chairs were just cherry and not too precious to use. They were every bit as pretty. The mantel was much larger. I could stand up in the fireplace, and it took two men to put on an everyday log, for the Christmas one. On each side were the bookshelves above, and the linen closets below. The mantel sat between these, and Mother always used the biggest, most gorgeous bouquets there, because she had so much room. The hearth was a slab of stone that came far into the room. We could sit on it, and crack nuts, roast apples, chestnuts, and warm our cider, then sweep all the muss we made into the fire. The wallpaper was white and pale pink in stripes, and on the pink were little handled baskets filled with tiny flowers of different colors. We sewed the rags for the carpet ourselves, and it was the prettiest thing. One stripe was wide, all gray, brown, and dull colors, and the other was pink. There were green blinds and lace curtains here also, and nice braided rugs that all of us worked on winter evenings. Everything got spicker and spanner each day. Mother said there was no use in putting down a carpet in a dining room where you constantly fed a host, and the boys didn't clean their feet as carefully as they should in winter. But there were useful rags where they belonged, and in our bedroom opening from it also. The dining room wallpaper had a broad stripe of rich cream with pink cabbage roses scattered over it, and a narrow pink stripe, while the woodwork was something perfectly marvelous. I didn't know what kind of wood it was, but a man who could turn his hand to anything painted it. First he put on a pale yellow coat and let it dry. Then he added wood brown, and while it was wet, with a coarse tooth comb, a rag, and his fingers, he imitated the grain, the even wood, and knot holes of dressed lumber, until many a time I found myself staring steadily at a knot, to see if a worm wouldn't really come working out. You have to see a thing like that to understand how wonderful it is. You couldn't see why they washed the bedding, and took the feathers from the pillows, and steamed them in mosquito netting bags and dried them in the shade, when Sally's was to be a morning wedding, but they did. I even had to take a bucket, and gather from around the walls, all the little heaps of rocks and shells that Uncle Abraham had sent Mother from California, take them out and wash and wipe them, and stack them back, with the fanciest ones on top. He sent her a ring, made of gold he dug himself. She always kept the ring in a bottle in her bureau, and she meant to wear it at the wedding, with her new silk dress. I had a new dress, too. I don't know how they got everything done. All of them worked, until the last few days they were perfect cross-patches. 
When they couldn't find another thing indoors to scour, they began on the yard, orchard, barn, and road. Mother even had Leon stack the woodpile straighter. She said when corded wood leaned at an angle, it made people seem shiftless. And she never passed a place where it looked that way, that her fingers didn't just itch to get at it. He had to pull every ragweed on each side of the road, as far as our land reached, and lay every rail straight in the fences. Father had to take spikes and our biggest mall, and go to the bridges at the foot of the big and the little hill, and see that every plank was fast, so none of them would rattle when important guests drove across. She said she just simply wouldn't have them in such a condition that Judge Pettis couldn't hear himself think when he crossed. For you could tell from his looks that it was very important that none of the things he thought should be lost. There wasn't a single spot about the place, inside or out, that wasn't gone over. And to lots of it, you never would have known anything had been done if you hadn't seen, because the place was always in proper shape anyway. But father said mother acted just like that, even when her sons were married at other people's houses. And if she kept on getting worse, every girl she married off, by the time she reached me, we'd all be scoured threadbare, and she'd be on the verge of the grave. May and I weeded the flower beds, picked all the ripe seed, and pulled up and burned all the stalks that were done blooming. Father and Laddie went over the garden carefully. They scraped the walks, and even shook the palings, to see if one were going to come loose right at the last minute, when every one would be so frustrated there would be no time to fix it. Then they began to talk about arrangements for the ceremony, whether we should have our regular minister, or presiding elder Lemon, and what people they were going to invite. Just when we had planned to ask everyone, have the wedding in the church, and the breakfast at the house, and all drive in a joyous procession to Groveville to give them a good send-off, in walked Sally. She had been visiting Peter's people, and we planned a lot while she was away. "'What's going on here?' she asked, standing in the doorway, dangling her bonnet by the ties. She never looked prettier. Her hair had blown out in little curls around her face from riding. Her cheeks were so pink, and her eyes so bright." We were talking about having the ceremony in the church, so everyone can be comfortably seated and see and hear well, answered Mother. Sally straightened up, and began jerking the roses on her bonnet, far too roughly for artificial flowers. Perhaps I surprised you with that artificial word. But I can spell and define it. It's easy divided into syllables. Goodness knows, I have seen enough flowers, made from the hair of the dead, wax, and paper, where you get the shape, but the color never is right. These of Sally's were much too bright, but they were better than the ones made at our house. Hers were of cloth, and bought at a store. You couldn't tell why, but Sally jerked her roses. I wish she wouldn't, because I knew very well they would be used to trim my hat the next summer. And she said, Well, people don't have to be comfortable during a wedding ceremony. They can stand up if I can. And as for seeing and hearing, I'm asking a good many that I don't intend to have see or hear either one. "'My soul!' cried Mother, and she dropped her hands, and her mouth fell open, like she always told us we should never let ours, while she stared at Sally. "'I don't care,' said Sally, straightening taller yet. Her eyes began to shine, and her lips to quiver, as if she would cry in a minute. "'I don't care.' "'Which means, my child, that you do care very much,' said Father. "'Suppose you cease such reckless talk, and explain to us exactly what it is that you do want.' Sally gave her bonnet an awful jerk. Those roses would look like sin before my turn to wear them came. And she said, Well, then I do care. I care with all my might. The church is all right, of course, but I want to be married in my very own home. 
Everyone can think whatever they please about their home, and so can I. And what I think is, that this is the nicest and the prettiest place in all the world, and I belong here. Father lifted his head, his face began to shine, and his eyes to grow teary, while Mother started toward Sally. She put out her hand, and held Mother from her at arm's length, and she turned and looked behind her through the sitting-room and parlor, and then at us, and she talked so fast, you never could have understood what she said if you hadn't known all of it anyway, and thought exactly the same thing yourself. I have just loved this house ever since it was built, she said, and I've had as good times here as any girl ever had. If anyone thinks I'm so very anxious to leave it, and you and mother, and all the others, why, it's a big mistake. Seems as if a girl is expected to marry, and go to a home of her own. It's drummed into her, and things fixed for her from the day of her birth. And of course I do like Peter, but no home in the world, not even the one he provides for me, will ever be any dearer to me than my own home. And as I've always lived in it, I want to be married in it. And I want to stay here until the very last second. You shall, my child, you shall, sobbed mother. And as for having a crowd of men that father is planning to ask, staring at me, because he changes harvest help and wood chopping with them, or being criticized and clawed over by some woman, simply because they'll be angry if they don't get the chance, I just won't. So there, not if I have to stand the minister against the wall and turn our backs to everyone. I think— that will do, said father, wiping his eyes. That will do, Sally. Your mother and I have got a pretty clear understanding of how you feel now. Don't excite yourself. Your wedding shan't be used to pay off our scores. You may ask exactly whom you please, want, and feel quite comfortable to have around you. Then Sally fell on mother's neck, and everyone cried a little. Then we wiped up. Leon gave Sally his slate, and she came and sat beside the table, and began to make out a list of those she really wanted to invite. First, she put down all of our family, even many away in Ohio, and all of Peter's, and then his friends and hers. Once in the list of girls, she stopped and said, If I take that beautiful imported handkerchief from Pamela Pryor, I have just got to invite her. And she will outdress and outshine you at your own wedding, put in Shelley. Let her if she can, said Sally calmly. She'll have to hump herself if she beats that dress of mine. And as for looks, I know lots of people who think gray eyes, pink cheeks, and brown curls far daintier and prettier than red cheeks and black eyes and curls. If she really is better looking than I am, it isn't her fault. God made her that way. And he wouldn't like us to punish her for it. And it would, because anyone can see she wants to be friends. Don't you think, Mother? Mother nodded. And besides, I think she's better looking than I am myself. Sally said that, and wrote down the princess's name in big letters— and no one cheeped. Then she began on our neighborhood, thinking out loud and writing what she thought. So all of us were as still, and held our breath in softly and waited. And Sally said slow and musing-like, Of course, we couldn't have anything at this house without Sarah Hood. She dressed most of us when we were born, nursed us when we were sick, helped with threshing, company, and parties, and she's just splendid anyway. We better ask all the Hoods. So she wrote them down. And it will be lonely for Widow Willis and the girls to see everyone else here. We must have them, and of course Deems. Amanda is always such splendid help, and the Widow Fall is so perfectly lovely. We want her for decorative purposes. And we could scarcely leave out Shaw's. They always have all of us everything they do. And Dr. Fenner, of course. And we'll want Flo and Agnes Kunz to wait on table. So their folks might as well come too. So she went on taking up each family we knew, 
and telling what they had done for us, or what we had done for them, and she found some good reason for inviting them. And pretty soon father settled back in his chair, and never took his eyes from Sally's shining head, as she bent over the slate. And then he began pulling his lower lip, like when it won't behave, and his eyes danced exactly as I've seen Leon's. I never had noticed that before. Sally went straight on, and at last she came to Freshett's. I am going to have all of them, too, she said. The children are good children, and it will help them along to see how things are done when they are right. And I don't care what anyone says. I like Mrs. Freshett. I'll ask her to help work, and that will keep her from talking, and give the other woman a chance to see that she's clean and human, and would be a good neighbor if they'd be friendly. If we ask her, then the others will. When she finished, as you live, there wasn't a soul she had left out, except Bill Ramsdell, who starved his dog until it sucked our eggs, and Isaac Thomas, who was so lazy he wouldn't work enough to keep his wife and children dressed, so they ever could go anywhere. But he always went, even with rags flying, and got his stomach full just by talking about how he loved the Lord. To me, I couldn't see Isaac Thomas without beginning to myself. Tis the voice of the sluggard, I hear him complain. You have waked me too soon, I must slumber again. I passed by his garden, I saw the wild briar, the thorn and the thistle grow broader and higher. The clothes that hang on him are turning to rags, and his money he wastes till he starves or he begs. That described Isaac to the last tatter, only he couldn't waste money, he never had any. Once I asked father what he thought Isaac would do with it, if by some unforeseen working of divine providence he got ten dollars. Father said he could tell me exactly, because Isaac once sold some timber, and had a hundred all at once. He went straight to town, and bought Mandy a red silk dress, and a brass breastpin, when she had no shoes. He got the children an organ, when they were hungry, and himself a plug hat. Mandy and the children cried, because he forgot candy and oranges until the last cent was gone. Father said the only time Isaac ever worked, since he knew him, was when he saw how the hat looked with his rags. He actually helped the men fell the trees until he got enough to buy a suit, the remains of which he still wore on Sunday. I asked father why he didn't wear the hat, too, and father said the loss of that hat was a blow from which Isaac never had recovered. Once, at camp meeting, he laid it aside to pray his longest, most impressive prayer, and an affectionate cow strayed up and licked the nap all off before Isaac finished, so he never could wear it again. Sally said, I'll be switched if I'll have that disgusting creature around stuffing himself on my wedding day. But if you're not in bed when it's all over, mother, I do wish you'd send Mandy and the children a basket. Mother promised, and father sat and looked on, and pulled his lower lip until his ears almost wiggled. Then Sally said she wanted Laddie and Shelley to stand at the parlor door, and keep it tight shut, and see everyone in the sitting-room, except a special list she had made out to send in there. She wanted all our family and Peter's, and only a few very close friends, but it was enough to fill the room. She said when she and Peter came downstairs, everyone could see how they looked when they crossed the sitting-room, and for all the difference the door would make, it could be left open then. She would be walled in by people she wanted around her, and the others could have the fun of being there, seeing what they could, and getting all they wanted to eat. Father and mother said that was all right, only to say nothing about the plan to shut the door, but when the time came, just to close it, and everything would be satisfactory. Then Sally took the slate upstairs to copy the list with ink, so everyone went about something, while mother crossed to father, and he took her on his lap, and they looked at each other the longest and the hardest, and neither of them said a word. 
After a while, they cried and laughed, and cried some more, and it was about as sensible as what a flock of geese say when they are let out of the barn and start for the meadow in the morning. Then father, all laughy and cryy, said, Thank God, oh, thank God, the girl loves the home we have made for her. Just said it over and over, and mother kept putting in, It pays, Paul, it pays. Next day Sally put on her riding habit, and fixed herself as pretty as ever she could, and went around to have a last little visit with everyone, and invited them herself, and then she wrote letters to people away. Elizabeth and Lucy came home, and everyone began to work. Father and mother went to the village in the carriage, and brought home the bed full of things to eat, and all we had was added, and mother began to pack butter, and save eggs for cakes, and the day before, I thought there wouldn't be a chicken left on the place. They killed and killed, and Sarah Hood, Amanda Deem, and Mrs. Freshett picked and picked. I'll bet a dollar we get something this time besides ribs and neck, said Leon. How do you suppose thigh and breast would taste? I was always crazy to try the tail, I said. Much chance you got, sniggered Leon. Remember the time that father asked the presiding elder, Brother Lemon, what piece of the fallow do you prefer? And he up and said, I'm partial to the rump, Brother Stanton. There sat father, bound he wouldn't give him mother's piece, so he pretended he couldn't find it, and forked all over the platter, and then gave him the ribs and the thigh. Gee, how mother scolded him after the preacher had gone. You notice father hasn't asked that since. Now, he always says, Do you prefer light or dark meat? Much chance you have of ever tasting a tail, if father won't even give one to the presiding elder. But as many as they are killing— Oh, this time, said Leon with a flourish— this time we are going to have livers and breast and thighs and tails if you are beholden to tail i'd like to know how we are well since you have proved that you can keep your mouth shut for a little while anyway i'm going to take you in on this said leon you keep your eyes on me when the wedding gets going good you watch me and slip out that's all i'll be fixed to do the rest but mind this get out when i do all right i promised they must have wakened about four o'clock on the wedding day. It wasn't really light when I got up. I had some breakfast in my nightdress, and then I was all fixed up in my new clothes, and made to sit on a chair, and never move, for fear I would soil my dress, for no one had time to do me over, and there was only one dress anyway. There was so much to see, you could keep interested just watching, and I was so anxious to look nice before the boys and girls, and the big people, as anyone. Every mantel and table and bureau was covered with flowers, and you could have smelled the kitchen a mile away, I know. The dining table was set for the wedding party, our father and mother, and Peter's, and the others had to wait. You couldn't have laid the flat of your hand on that table anywhere. It was so covered with things to eat. Miss Amelia, in a dress none of us ever had seen before, a real nice white dress, pranced around it and smirked at everyone and waved the peacock feather-brush to keep the flies from the jelly, preserves, jam, butter, and things that were not cooked. For hours Mrs. Freshett had stood in the kitchen on one side of the stove, frying chicken, and heaping it in baking-pans in the oven, and Amanda Deem on the other, frying ham, while Sarah Hood cooked other things, and made a wash-boiler of coffee. Everything was ready by the time it should have been. I had watched them until I was tired, when Sally came through the room where I was, and she said I might come along upstairs and see her dressed. When we reached the door, I wondered where she would put me, but she pushed clothing together on a bed and helped me up, and that was great fun. 
She had been bathed, and had on her beautiful new linen underclothing, that mother punched full of holes and embroidered in flowers and vines. And Shelley was brushing her hair, when someone called out, The princess is coming! End of chapter 7, part 1